I mean, part of the issue is that they are so, I mean, this is 600 years later, they're so divorced from the culture in which one could understand these documents that what they're preserving, they don't actually understand, right? They don't know most of what these documents mean, even the ones that have ultimately scientific significance. I mean, there's a discussion of one where they're talking about electrons, right? It's a scientific document talking about the um, subatomic particles in an atom. And, you know, their, their conclusion is that they have faith that the electron existed at one time, but they don't know how it was constructed or what it might have been used for, right? They have no idea what it is. They, I mean, they actually think it's something that you could create, um, a bit of technology. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. This is a very special episode of the podcast because my guest this time is also my husband and fellow philosopher, Chris Frey, and we discuss the very weird but very wonderful sci-fi novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that today is the Feast of St. Benedict, which feels more than a little providential for the release of this particular episode. As always, I would like to thank the Institute for Human Ecology for underwriting this podcast. To learn more about the IHE and the work that they do on human flourishing, just go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And you can learn more about this podcast by going to our website, sacredandprofanelove.com. On the website, you can find an archive of all our past episodes and guests, and also a blog where we post news related to the work that we do. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at eudaimoniapod. You can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jen Frey, and I'm also on Instagram at Professoressa Frey. And if you would like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am really pleased to be joined by someone that my Twitter followers will recognize, and that is my husband. Many of you know that I am also married to a philosopher, and here he is. His name is Chris Frey, and he works on Aristotle and sometimes Aquinas, and sometimes philosophy of mind. So welcome to the podcast, babe. Thank you for having me. I've been a, a big fan of yours for many years and have been looking forward to this opportunity to, to finally get to speak to you. My number one fan. Anyway, <laughs> so this will be like kind of weird and different. I am not used to podcasting upstairs while my guest is downstairs and there's a little bit of construction noise next door. So I apologize in advance if that becomes a thing, but we decided to talk about a canticle for Leibowitz. This is sort of a sci-fi novel by Walter M. Miller Jr. And this is a book that has been on my to read list for 
I don't know, probably at least as long as we've been married because you always told me that I should read it. And like a lot of things that you tell me, I, I never did it. So, but I did finally do it Mm -hmm. and I loved it. I absolutely loved this book. Good. So yeah, we'll get into it. But first I think we should talk about Walter Miller, who is a very interesting guy. Sure. Um, so he was born in 1923 in Florida and he went to school at the university of Tennessee and university of Texas. His goal was to become an engineer. But like so many others, his path was interrupted by World War II. He, he served in the Army Air Forces as a radio man and a tail gunner and flew over 50 bombing missions, I think primarily over Italy. And the most notable among them, and ultimately the most significant for him as an individual, was the ill-fated bombing of the Benedictine Abbey at Monte Cassino. Um, so the Abbey of Monte Cassino was the first house of the Benedictine order. It was established by St. Benedict himself back in 529. And this was a complete disaster, not just because they destroyed, uh, you know, this great historical site. Um, the, the bombing was conducted because British intelligence, they thought Germans were occupying the monastery and using it as an artillery observation point. But it turns out they weren't. There were no Germans present. And the only people killed there were about 230 Italian civilians who were seeking refuge there. Ah, that's horrible. Yeah. I mean, this proved particularly traumatic experience for him, right? I mean, his entire wartime experience left him shaken. He had serious PTSD for decades later, basically the remainder of his life. Now, after the war, he converted to Catholicism, and he began writing and publishing short science fiction stories. Three of these, originally published independently, ultimately became this novel, A Canticle for Leibniz. He realized they should be united only after writing the first two, and he significantly revised them and turned them into the novel, which came out, I think, 1959. It was well-received. It got you know the Hugo Award for Best Science Fiction Novel, very good reviews. But after the book's success, he ceased writing and publishing altogether. This is the only novel he published during his lifetime. There's a sequel that was published posthumously, which I must admit I've never read and don't hear much about. And in his later years, during this time when he wasn't publishing, he became increasingly reclusive, right? He started avoiding contact with nearly everyone, eventually including his literary agent, his extended family members. As I said, he suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and eventually drank heavily. He fell away from Catholicism. He blamed Vatican II. He said, you know, post-Vatican II Catholicism reminded him of the sort of Protestantism of his childhood. And, uh, you know, a lot of what initially attracted him to the church was no longer present. He he eventually adopted some idiosyncratic variety of Buddhism. Who knows? But in... Hey, wait wait a second. Wait a second. Hold up. Mm -hmm. So he leaves the church because of Vatican II. But I... I mean, my suspicion is that he left because of the changes in the liturgy. Yes. There was something important about the liturgy that attracted him to Catholicism. And when those features were no longer present, um, it was the opening for him to slowly drift away, right? It is no longer... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many, many such cases, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people... 
drifted away from the church after the liturgical changes, including, of course, your own papa. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just I just find that so fascinating, not just because I'm obsessed with the liturgy and I'm a bit of a nutty rad trad myself, but because I think it, I think knowing this fact, I think knowing what aspects of the church really did resonate with him and and what aspects of the church didn't kind of filter into the way that you would read this novel. It's, it certainly colors the way that I read it at any rate. Yeah, and I mean, he was, as, I, as I've mentioned, deeply troubled along numerous dimensions. And I think often he was just trying to seek something that would give him peace, throwing himself into it fully. And then when it's not entirely working, moving on to other things. And ultimately, you know, in 1995, his wife of 50 years passed away and he was so despondent. Um, Shortly after a year later, he committed suicide. He shot himself. And so ultimately the demons he'd been struggling with one out. So what year was that? Uh, 96. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay, so he was old. Yeah, you could do the math. So, <laughs> um, was, yeah, in his early 70s. Oh, okay. No, he wasn't that old, actually. Okay. Well, that's sad. Okay, and then there was a, a posthumous novel that's not very noteworthy, and then that's it in terms of his literary output. Yeah, I mean, he had a lot of short stories before can't go for Leibowitz came out. You know, that was, he was trying to make a living as a working science fiction author. Oh, that was his day job? Um, when he came back from the war, that's what he was, I, I don't know if he was employed elsewhere, but I mean, he he did write. Well, I mean, I just, I just assumed that he was because who can make a living writing short stories only? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So let's, Let's dive into the novel mm-hmm. because there's so much here. So I guess I'm just going to assume that at least some of our listeners haven't read this. And so I think it's important to kind of just go over the structure of the novel and then we'll just take it in chunks because there are three parts of this novel, which, as you said, I mean, originally it was two different stories, which is kind of weird to me because they're so deeply interwoven. But I guess maybe he did that once he decided to make it into a single story. I don't know. Yeah, uh, he he revised them all significantly in order to unify them and, and connect them thematically. Yeah, well, I think he did a great job with that. But yeah, just why don't you give us the basic setup and then we'll start with the part one, which is Fiat Homo. Sure. So um, there's a general background to all three of the books, right? So in the 20th century, there was a devastating nuclear war. It comes to be known as the Great Fire Deluge. And in its aftermath, the survivors, they direct their rage upon the scientists whose work was indispensable to the creation of the weapons that ultimately destroyed civilization, right? So in its aftermath, the survivors direct their rage upon the scientists whose work was indispensable to the creation of the weapons that ultimately led to civilization's downfall. And this expands into a movement called the Age of Simplification, right? During this time, the aim was the complete destruction of all books, technology, learned men and women, and eventually the even, you know, the merely literate were killed. And the world descends into a dark age of, you know, tribal conflict, 
cannibalism, general barbarity. Within this age, shortly after the war, there arose a small collection of monks, the Albertian Order of Leibovitz, and their namesake, uh, Isaac Edward Leibovitz, who was a Jewish electrical engineer before the war. His wife was killed in the war's radioactive fallout. And um, after this, he finds meaning by founding this monastic community that was dedicated to the preservation of human knowledge. These monks became copyists and memorizers. But it's Catholic. Sorry, just to be clear, it's a Catholic order. Very much so. I mean, he is Jewish, as his name would suggest, but he becomes Catholic and founds this monastic order. And their their purposes, you know, they smuggle and hide manuscripts, they copy and illustrate and commit them to memory. They're preserving what small scraps of human culture remain. They call these collected documents the memorabilia. And so the overall structure of the book, it comprises three books, as we mentioned, were first independent novellas. The first is called Fiat Homo, Let There Be Man, and this takes place in the 26th century, right, 600 years after the nuclear apocalypse. It concerns the members of the Order of Leibovitz during a time when the barbarous age is still ongoing, and there's a a novice brother, Francis Gerard, who's alone in the desert during his Lenten fast, and he discovers an ancient fallout shelter through the help of a, a mysterious pilgrim. And in it, there are several documents, including one that appears to to bear the signature of Leibovitz himself. The second book, Fiat Lux, Let There Be Light, takes place, it's a big temporal jump 600 years later in 3174. At at this time, the culture has changed enough to allow the pursuit of knowledge to commence once more. There's a renewal of secular science, um, at least the early stages of this. And uh, one of these secular scholars, Thon Taddeo, he visits the monastery to inspect the memorabilia, the ancient documents they've been keeping in the hope that uh, it will aid him in his pursuit to recover the lost human scientific knowledge. And finally, the third book, Fiat Bonta Tua, Thy Will Be Done. Again, there's a big temporal jump. This takes place another 600 years into the future, 3781. The progression of scientific knowledge, it's resulted in a technological age that surpasses even that of the 20th century, right? But the result is the same. The world's two superpowers, the the Asian coalition and the Atlantic Confederacy, they began a limited nuclear exchange that descends into another apocalyptic nuclear war. But there is one small group of bishops and monks that escape on a spaceship to take the memorabilia and the church itself to the outer world colony of Alpha Centauri. I mean, obviously a lot more happens in all three of these books, but I think that's the most general most general structure of, of what's going on. Yeah, so you have these intervals uh, every six centuries from the time of the nuclear apocalypse, and you have kind of a beginning with the nuclear apocalypse, or at least a memory of it, and then the ending with another nuclear apocalypse. and But the thing that remains the same throughout this enormous stretch of time is the church mm-hmm. and this abbey, right? I mean, these two, I mean, so it's, it's sort of remarkable, the continuity there. And it raises this question about what, you know, Miller's, is trying to say with that, but other, uh, you know, I mean, that's sort of the most 
striking thing about it to me. But let's, I mean, let's go back to Fiat Homo now. Mm-hmm. Um, because because it is like these different vignettes. So with every vignette in this long historical <clears throat> march towards doom, <laughs> um, you have the monastery is is really at the heart of of the action. And you'll have some abbot and some kind of very important monk. And then, you know, that the action kind of, kind of, that, that's sort of the center of the novel is what's going on in the order in relation to what's going on in the world. So like one thing, actually, I have a question. So because all of the action of the novel takes place from the perspective of the abbey, the abbey is where actually like where is this abbey located i think it's in utah yeah so the only thing i guess that i want to mention about brother francis gerard Mm -hmm. is that it says he's a son of the savage utah race so i don't really exactly know what that means but it seems noteworthy well i mean a lot of these a lot of the centers of population they're very tribal like um at least that's the way it's described these aren't new cities this they haven't yet kind of rebuilt civilization to the extent that it would look anything like the cities we have currently they're wandering tribes and the way they're described all of them are fairly savage in practice right there's constant warfare between them I mean, at this stage, it's a pretty small scale just because of population and organization. But it is not, it's not a time in which living is easy, right? The, the abbots of the monastery, they are isolated from this largely and, and protected to the extent that anyone can be. But it seems like life in general is uh, nasty, brutish, and short, as they say. Yeah, so, what, so let's talk about what brother Francis Gerard does and also sort of like his relationship to the order. Yeah. Well, he's a novice. Um, He is on this Lenten fast and it's pretty ascetic, right? You, you might, you might have to explain to some of our listeners what a novice in a monastic order is. It's, it's unclear if the practices are the same as they currently are. Right. But he is a new initiate. He has not been fully accepted as a member on equal footing with the other members of the monastery. And there are, you know, there's a a period of education and discernment and prayer that he needs to go through before he is promoted, as it were. And so he's out in the desert. He's not allowed to eat. Um, Basically, I mean, he's got an incredibly small amount of provisions. It is terribly hot. Um, Most of his time during the day is just seeking some small amount of shade. It is a period of pain and, um, and wanting. And during this time, he sees a kind of mysterious pilgrim in the distance who he's not supposed to speak to, right? I mean, part of this Lenten fast also includes a period of silence. But what happens, this pilgrim 
eventually they do communicate, and one thing that Brother Gerard needs, he's trying to create a kind of um, makeshift home for himself to keep the sun off of him, and there is a oddly sized rock that he needs in order to complete this, and the pilgrim identifies one that would be perfect for it and writes some Hebrew letters on it. Uh, eventually, when, in, when he removes this rock, it discloses kind of an underground shaft, a hole, which he, he gets the courage to eventually enter and explore, and it is a heretofore undiscovered fallout shelter. And within it, he looks around and he eventually finds all sorts of documents, including one that he recognizes has the name Leibovitz on it. And so this is, you know, quite shocking moment for him to not only find new text to enter into the monastery's collection of memorabilia, but incredibly important ones from its founder, Leibovitz himself. Well, what kind of documents does he find? Well, he's not entirely sure what they are, right? I mean, part of this, it's written in what they call the Old English, which is difficult for many of them to read. But, you know, some of these that he finds, he he doesn't understand what they are, right? So one of them is clearly just a shopping list, right? It says like pound pastrami, a can of kraut, six bagels. But he's unable to determine whether this is something significant or what it actually is, right? Just a fairly meaningless scrap. Um, They treat all of these documents with the same sort of reverence and importance, right? They solemnly add these trivial tidbits to their memorabilia. I mean, part of the issue is that they are so, I mean, this is 600 years later, they're so divorced from the culture in which one could understand these documents that what they're preserving, they don't actually understand, right? They don't know most of what these documents mean, even the ones that have ultimately scientific significance. I mean, there's a discussion of one where they're talking about electrons, right? It's a scientific document talking about the um, subatomic particles in an atom. And, you know, their, their conclusion is that they have faith that the electron existed at one time, but they don't know how it was constructed or what it might have been used for, right? They have no idea what it is. They, I mean, they actually think it's something that you could create, um, a bit of technology. I mean, the misunderstanding is so significant that when he sees the, the phrase fallout shelter, there's a thought that fallout was a name of some sort of monster that um, um, that went around the earth killing people, right? Like, he's scared to enter because he sees fallout. He's worried that when he goes in, there's going to be some sort of beast that that will consume him yeah well he's also worried about just blowing up because apparently a lot of monks would like find stuff uh they start pushing buttons and yeah that was the end of of that particular (laughs) monk so i mean i think he's like proceeding with extreme caution for a variety of reasons yeah but i think it's kind of interesting one thing that's not, I mean, so one obvious thing that Miller is doing is he's recreating a world 
that is analogous to the actual so-called dark mm-hmm. ages in the West when, you know, after the fall of the Roman Empire, there was this kind of loss of what we will call for the purposes of this podcast, worldly knowledge. And really the only centers of learning were the monasteries. Um, They were these, you know, preserves of, what do we want to say? Learning and culture and sort of doing the very hard work of reproducing the texts that they had managed to save. And of course, you know, a lot of it was at least until the the 12th century, the 13th century, uh, lost, Mm -hmm. right? Wouldn't be recovered until, right? I mean, so for example, Aristotle wouldn't really be recovered until, uh, until centuries later. So he's recreating a world in which this is once again the case. And I think, you know, it, it is interesting that, that the monasteries are the centers for learning because, there's a whole theology behind that, right? Why, why is it that the monks, that the church are, are the ones that, that, are, that are interested in knowledge, right? What, what is it about learning that has to do with loving God <laughs> or anything that the, that the church is supposed to be interested in? And so I think that's one huge theme. It's maybe actually the huge theme of the novel is sort of like what is the right relationship between study and learning and salvation, right? Or what we might call intimacy with God or communion with God. But Brother Gerard's living in this time where worldly knowledge seems pretty scant, but it seems like, you know, what we might call divine wisdom or something like this is, is still fine. I mean, if, for Mm -hmm. example, it seems to me that they did not lose scripture, they did not lose their rubrics for prayer and liturgy, like all of that seems very intact. And of course, you haven't mentioned this yet, but they all Mm -hmm. speak Latin. (laughs) And of course, Walter Miller is very much a pre-Vatican II Catholic. And so he recognized Latin as a liturgical language, as the language of prayer, as the language of worship, as the language of the church. Yeah, uh, the, amount, the amount of Latin present in the novel is pretty extreme for its time. He does translate, but there are Latin phrases throughout, not just the names of the different books. but um... Well, yeah, because it's the language of the monastery. <laughs> That's the language that they speak. And so it's interesting, you know, he's kind of, he's setting up the raw materials for, again, this this contrast that really gets going in the next section, but yeah. that is between, you know, worldly wisdom or worldly learning and divine wisdom. And like, how are they exactly supposed to be related to one another? Yeah. Well, as they describe their purpose, I mean, they say the church, the mysticum Christi corpus is a body and the order, their monastic order is serving as an organ of memory in that body. But their condition, although you said it's analogous to our so-called dark ages, it's much more severe. I mean, as you well know, there were plenty of people throughout that period of time who were engaged in the same kind of natural philosophical and scientific and philosophical inquiries, right? They understood the texts they had, they improved upon them and 
developed them. Many of them were no longer present, but were being preserved elsewhere and eventually came back. But in this 600-year period, they become so alienated from the practices within which these documents could be understood that the preservation, it's not in a way during this time, a continuation of that same sort of philosophical activity or scientific activity. It's merely preservation, right? They copy them without understanding in the hope that at one point in time, someone will be able to use them and discern them and come to know what's present in them, even though basically none of them understand what these documents mean at all. So it wasn't, they weren't preserving these this memorabilia because they were currently using it or thought it was particularly useful. They were happy to preserve them perpetually, and that was the goal, that the usage was ultimately secondary. Well, yeah, because they didn't know how to use them, so yeah. it couldn't possibly be primary. Yeah, that the, that, the, that the memorization and the preservation itself was the end, that it was intrinsically valuable, not I mean, there was some hope that there would be a time that uh, they could be put to use, but usage was secondary. And it was actually to be avoided if it threatened the primary purpose of preservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think, I mean, so if we think about, like, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Why are you so patiently preserving and documenting all this material that you yourself don't understand? Like, why are they doing it? They're not doing it for its own sake, are they? Um, doing it for its own sake. I mean, I don't think they're doing it for certain kinds of instrumental reasons, right? But they do think there is something of value in preserving these things. There's a point in which, in the second text, when they're talking about the kind of knowledge that could be present in these texts that they make an analogy to what they're doing to Christ as truth, that truth could be crucified, but soon perhaps there'd be a resurrection. And in a way, they are preserving things, waiting for a kind of resurrection for these texts, but that the wait is what is important, that, that you can serve and preserve these things so that it could be possible. Yeah, so I mean, I think that they're doing something in the knowledge that it's not for themselves, mm -hmm. but it's for some future generation of human beings that will, you know, come to have, come to gain knowledge from these texts, right? They all, like, it's not giving them knowledge. They don't know what it means. But aren't they, they're preserving it in the hope that it will bear the specific fruit of knowledge in the future. I mean, because otherwise it would just be really bizarre. Yeah, I mean, they, they mentioned that initially they thought that this age of simplification would would die down fairly quickly and that, you know, maybe even in their lifetimes, people would return to these texts and begin to take them seriously again. Um, but after a few generations, they realized this wasn't happening anytime soon, right? That they were preserving this for the future and that it didn't matter how long this future was. It could be thousands of years, right? And again, in a similar way, that you know, 
early Christians thought the resurrection would happen perhaps even in their own lifetimes and um, the sort of psychological transition to recognizing that the, the, the weight, though they have hope that it will happen and faith that it will happen, there's no, there's no discernible timeline for this and that there's value in continuing the hope and preserving what was present before in perpetuity as long as it's, as is needed. Yeah, well, you talked about preserving memory and like, I just wonder if we can talk about that because if I think about preserving my memories, they're like experiences that I had that I was a part of and I don't know, like maybe I kept a journal or something and then six Mm -hmm. centuries down the line, somebody finds my journal, God help them, then they're going to have my memories in a sense. And if we assume a situation where it's so far in the future, like they don't understand any of the references, like they don't know what a laptop is, or I don't know, they don't know what a family is. Mm -hmm. Let's say they don't know uh, what Catholicism is. They like, don't know what the Virgin Mary is. I don't know. Like in what sense would they have my memories? Yeah. I mean, they do, they do describe this as uh, an age of cultural amnesia, right? <laughs> that they eventually want the world to wake up from and regain memory. But um, you're right. Once you're cut off from the context that would provide understanding, there's no return, right? I mean, it's not as if they're going to regain what was present before in the same way. They're just cut off from that. Um but what, well, in what sense is it a memory at all? I guess is what I'm asking. Like you have like, it's a memory in the sense that, you know, it was in the past, like you assume it happened, but if you don't understand it, I just don't, I mean, it just seems like what's essential to memory <laughs> has been lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, what happens they're thinking is kind of a rebirth. It's going to be something new, right? I mean, it's not a return and a preservation in that sense, right? It's not like they put something in the time capsule and then they pull it out and it's exactly as it was before, but it'll provide the foundation for a return to this aspect of human culture once they take the pursuit of truth seriously again, right? So it is a preservation of sorts, even though what they're preserving can no longer, in some sense, be what it is fully on its own, right? It's it's always going to be this odd shadow of what it was before that no one will entirely understand, but there's enough connection that one can use it to in some sense recreate what was there before. And they do eventually recreate what was there before, the same sorts of crafts and arts and technologies, some of them that they do eventually understand within the text, right? We'll see, like, you know, they recreate electricity um, and they do so in large part by finally understanding some of the material in the text. Yeah, sure. Okay, but let's let's finish up Brother Gerard's story. So he finds this stuff. He brings it back to the order. I mean, we haven't talked about the pilgrim. Should yeah. we talk about the pilgrim yet or should we wait? Uh, well, it's going to come up again and again because, curiously, this pilgrim shows up in both of the other books, which might initially be surprising given that they occur 600 years apart from each other. <laughs> um, yeah. So is he like kind of a supernatural figure? Well, let's, let's just, let's just note that this pilgrim is really weird. Yes. 
can set him aside for now. Um, but what what ends up happening to Brother Gerard? Um, well, he he brings these texts back to the monastery, and it's very important because they're in the process of trying to get Leibovitz canonized as a saint, right? Eventually, he goes on a pilgrimage to New Rome to provide the documents to them so that they have a stronger foundation for the case for canonization. But eventually, at the end, he is killed by some of these marauders, and that is the end of his story. Eventually, the pilgrim finds him and gives him a proper burial so that the buzzards, buzzards flying around don't treat him as carrion. All right, so let's move on to Fiat Lux. This is the longest part of, mm-hmm. yeah, the longest part of the novel. It's actually my favorite part, I think, although I didn't feel that way the first time I read it. But I read this twice before this podcast, um, which actually I think was really important because there's so much that I missed the first time that I read it. Just lots of little clever things that he's doing. But at any rate, yeah, so let's talk about Fiat Looks. Yeah, so this takes place 600 years later, and the culture has changed enough to get past the age of simplification that it now allows, in a a limited way, the pursuit of knowledge to commence once again. It's a renewal of secular science. And so as far as the analogy goes, this is the renaissance to the previous period of the Dark Ages. And one of these, yeah, one of these secular scholars, his name's Thon Taddeo, he is visiting the monastery. Um, His goal is to inspect the memorabilia of the ancient documents they've been keeping, because rightly so, he thinks that they will contain material that he's at least now in a position to maybe better understand that will help him in his pursuit of uh, secular scientific knowledge and technology, right? And even the monks themselves at this time have been engaged in a similar pursuit, right? They, they've begun to understand better some of the materials in these memorabilia. So one of the brothers, Brother Kornhoer, is able to recreate electricity and creates uh, an electric light. That's, you know, part of the title, Fiat Looks, Let There Be Light. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically a renaissance. And part of this is, um, I mean, I, th- I think that he's being like, especially clever here. I mean, because part of what's going on is that the church is getting much more involved in worldly affairs, political, but also, yeah, is is getting more um, involved in the creation of knowledge, not just the reproduction mm-hmm. of knowledge, but its actual creation. Because one of the surprising things that, that happens is that it's actually a monk that rediscovers electric light, <laughs> not, not the mm-hmm. great, not the great secular scientist who's clearly like super jealous and mad. There's like this really antagonistic feeling, I don't know, relationship between the secular scholar and the monastery. I mean, he sort of looks down on them. He accuses them of like hiding this stuff. Like, why have you been hiding this from us? Which is, Mm-hmm. Weird is a weird accusation, I think. This is kind of where the whole contrast between Ciencia and Sapiencia gets kicked up like a notch or two. 
Yeah, I mean, he's incredibly dismissive. I mean, when he sees that Brother Kornhauer has created an arc lamp, like he's actually produced electrical light, he kind of denies that this was any discovery at all. He thinks that it was just completely explained in the documents and they reproduced it like following a recipe without knowledge. Um, he's constantly trying to undermine any of the successes these monks have had in his pursuit, right? He's, he's very dismissive. But there is even on the side of, there's a sense in which the monks participating in the creation of technology is not viewed as an entirely good and beneficial thing, right? I mean, for example, Brother Kornhauer, in order to begin his experiments um, with electricity, he takes down the crucifix over the cubicle and replaces them with the lamp's carbon rods that he needs, right? That's the, the area in which he sets up his experiments. I mean, it's interesting. Like, the monks are happy to receive the secular scholar, right? I mean, at some points... They give them access to everything, right? Yeah, they but, they're, but they're also, like... I mean, at some point, somebody says to him that 40 generations have waited for you to come, right? So, mm -hmm. but then he's like oddly, I don't know. He's just oddly antagonistic. Um, he's, he's very prideful, right? Um, yeah, he's super he proud. Wants, he wants to see himself as the source and the creator of this new age, right? And he doesn't see the church as, as playing any productive role in this. If anything, he thinks they're limiting and, and um, restricting secular science from from achieving its goals. Yeah. And I mean, at some point, the abbot says to him that he has to make a choice to serve God first or serve Hannigan first. And then it's like really clear what his choice is, right? He, yeah, he's, he actually says, would you have me work for the church? And then right. he mentioned that it's, you know, the, 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 the amount of scorn in his voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that Miller's trying to underscore is that, well, one, I mean, obviously, this is like one of the main points of the story is that knowledge can become corrupted and perverted mm -hmm. and misused. And that man's mastery over nature through science is only good insofar as it's properly ordered. And of course, from, from a Catholic perspective, from the monks' perspectives, the proper ordering of things is always God first and foremost, right? Mm -hmm. so, so nothing that you can be doing in your pursuit of dominating nature, having control over nature, can come against what the church teaches um, what God commands. So I think, and that is something that, I mean, it seems pretty clear that Thon Tadio or however you say his name is an atheist, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's not like he's just an anti-Catholic, <laughs> um, although he is. I mean, at this point, actually, one thing that I thought was weird, it doesn't really it doesn't really seem that there's any religious diversity in this imagined future. Like, like there was no, I don't know. There was no, there was no seemingly no big schism or 
or Reformation or split. You just have the church and then you have like, it's clear that the kingdom of Texarkana, right? Feels like it needs to have some kind of good relation to the church, but it also seems clear that it doesn't really recognize the church as having authority over it. And in fact, the papal nuncio in this vignette, Marcus Apollo, which is like such a good pagan name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Renaissance, such a good pagan name, Marcus Apollo. Like he, he ends up getting killed by whatever, the king, the emperor, I don't really know who's in charge of Texarkana, whatever his title is. <laughs> Top guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he runs afoul of this guy and gets like executed and, and real. Drawn and, drawn and quartered, I think. Yeah, <laughs> in real medieval style. Yes, he was drawn and quartered. It was bloody. Um, so, so there, so, but it, but it doesn't really seem like, I don't know. It doesn't really seem like there's any other religious diversity going on, which I find sort of interesting, except for, except for, of course, the want, the old Jew, right? So yes. when- and there's also a proliferation of like witchcraft and kind of um, through Is all there? the old yeah, tribes. I don't, mm -hmm. okay. Like what kind of witchcraft there, are they doing? There, there's sacrifices and <laughs> um, okay, so various I'm, spells and incantations. Okay. All right. Well, I'm a bad reader. I don't think I really picked up on that. But um, that was more in the first book, talking about the the barbarous age of what these tribes were like. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I know there was a lot of murder and pillage and such. Um, a sprinkling of cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, but that's not necessarily religious. I mean. No, no. But but they do talk about witchcraft in general. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Well, anyway, I might have missed something, but um, but there is the old Jew. And so one thing mm -hmm. that – and the old Jew, it becomes clear, is actually the same person as the pilgrim from from the first story. Yes, yeah, so surpri surprising given that this is, takes place 600 years after the events of the first book. Yeah, so it says that he lays claim to several thousands of years of age, right? So, So mm -hmm. he talks about himself – as if he's centuries old. And he's sometimes called the old Jew. He's sometimes called the hermit. He's sometimes called Benjamin bar Joshua. Mm -hmm. So, so he's, he's kind of all over this. And eventually in the third book, he goes by the name Lazarus, which in the second book, it's pretty clear that's who he is. Right. Yeah. And I can't remember if it's the second book or the third book, because it kind of like runs together in my head. But he's also described as a mender of tents. So he has like this Hebrew mm -hmm. inscription, uh, which translated as like mender of tents. And then that has all kinds of biblical uh, connotations, both Christian and Jewish. But he is always wearing a prayer shawl. And he sort of, mm -hmm. he seems to keep up Jewish practice to some extent, but he's like the only Jew. So like when at some point they say, Oh, yeah, you could go, like, thousands of miles without, like, running into another one of his people. So it's sort of like there's, like, this weird reference where it suggests that, yeah, like, maybe there are other Jews, but nobody really sees them, and they're far away, and they're scattered. Mm -hmm. So there's no, like, Jewish part of Texarkana, apparently. Yeah. I actually Googled and I found online, like, a, like a map system 
Canticle of Leibowitz. <laughs> and like Texarkana was very big. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, this, this character, I mean, there are some affinities to the, the legend of the Wandering Jew, which was popular in the 13th century, right? And according to this legend, there was this individual who committed some indiscretion towards Jesus, right? I think originally he taunted him on the way to the crucifixion and was, was cursed to walk the earth until the second coming. In this one, it's very clear that this pilgrim is Lazarus, who Christ raised from the dead. He says he's 32 centuries old, and he says, you know, what is his purpose? He's looking for someone who shouted, come forth, right? Which is, I think, is a pretty funny description of Christ and what he did, right? Christ is a person who shouted at him, and come forth were the words Jesus yelled in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in this case, it is, I, I, it's not that Lazarus committed some, you know, indiscretion towards Christ, and that's why he's wandering the earth. As far as the book is concerned, he's condemned to wander until the second coming, only in part because he failed to become a Christian, right? He remained a Jew and didn't accept Christ, even though he was raised from the dead. And so he is to wander the earth until the second coming. And one of the things he does is um, he encounters people who might be and is able to discern whether they are Christ or not. At one point in this, he encounters Don Thaddeo and rejects him out of hand as not um, the, the Redeemer. Yeah, he just says, like, oh, that's not him. <laughs> like, just casually, it's not him. And the him yep. is capitalized. That's right. Yeah, so he has this, like, really strange role. I mean, his initial rejection of Christ and remaining um, Jewish in this way, it's it's reflected in his status as a pilgrim, alienated from general community, right? He's on his own, uh, waiting for the second coming, <laughs> outside of community altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess another thing that I want to say about... Um, this guy, Thon Tadio, is yeah. that he's he's a bit amoral, I would say. Like his pursuit of science, it's not just that it's secular, but it is a pursuit that is disconnected from correct moral or political thinking. So he's perfectly happy to allow this very corrupt ruler to do whatever he wants and to be in service to him so long as he can just do his thing. So he really has, on the one hand, he has like this kind of, I, I don't want to say pure because that's like, that has the wrong connotations, but he has this kind of maniacal mm -hmm. or one track mind towards scientific knowledge but it's so one track that he doesn't notice the ways in which he's being corrupted in its pursuit and the ways in which the knowledge itself is obviously going to be corrupted. Yeah, I mean, he's got incredible amount of pride. He's selfish. He has very high regard of his own abilities. And in contrast to what the brothers at the Abbey are doing, he's not interested in preservation, but creation, right? He wants to be the source and font of this new scientific knowledge. Um, and you could see this, right? Like when, 
when they are going through the experiments with the electrical light, they read off the account of creation, creation story, from yeah. Genesis, you know, where it says on the first, you know, let there be light, right? Um, right. And this is associated with, well, of course, the name Lucifer, the bringer of light, right? Who obviously his primary sin was pride, wanting himself to be the creator and take on that position, right? Rather than having it be God's. And I think there's something parallel going on with Don Tadia um, in not, I mean, he is an atheist, but he puts on himself the role and the position that ought be reserved for God. He's not preserving, he's not waiting for the second coming. He has no higher end beyond himself and his own abilities. Um, yeah. So he is a, he is a Lucifer figure. And, and very interestingly, in the third book, the activation code for the orbiting doomsday nuclear device is called Lucifer has Fallen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole, yeah. I mean, I've already said that, like, you know, the major theme of the novel, it seems to me, is this contrast between Ciencia and Sapiencia and the need for Ciencia mm -hmm. to be ordered ultimately to Sapiencia and just like the way that knowledge can get perverted. Like it's just this whole Promethean aspect to this, right? Where, I mean, the general way of characterizing the perversion or the corruption of the proper pursuit of knowledge or the proper way of study is to try to become like gods, right? Or to try to become like God. Mm -hmm. And that is to say, I think, you know, one of the things that is characteristic of modernity generally, I mean, this is supposed to be the Renaissance, but we all know where it's heading, is this idea that, you know, what's most mm -hmm. characteristic of scientific knowledge is that it's a kind of control or a kind of domination or power over nature. And so the reason why you want to learn nature's secrets is so that you can control them and manipulate them for, you know, whatever purposes you have, um, political, social, uh, wh whatever purposes you want to, yeah. technological. And then growing out of this, the idea that the absolutely fantastical, ridiculous idea that it's very clear that Miller himself wants to wants to push back very hard against is this idea that the more we have control over nature's secrets, and so the more technological progress we make, the closer we get to human freedom and human happiness and something like the kingdom of heaven on earth, right? I think that Miller is, is obviously mm -hmm. not just skeptical. I mean, because that's sort of not strong enough. I mean, I think he's horrified by this kind of view. And he sees that what the problem is really is just this idea that there is a truth about nature that's there that can be discovered. Right? It will be discovered at some point mm -hmm. by any true human civilization. In a way, he's, I think he's, He's extremely realist about knowledge, but he thinks there's always this danger in knowing the way that nature works. And the danger is that you won't be uh, properly ordered 
And then this knowledge becomes not the means of progress, but actually self-annihilation, like every time, right? And, and I think one of the things that's so, that I love about this novel is it sort of teases out along the way. I mean, it's simple stories, but it's stories that are told over such an immense historical stretch of time. But you can see piecemeal how the progression goes, right? And you can see like how the corruption <laughs> takes hold. And yeah, I think one of the key moments in the second part of the novel, Fiat Looks, is the pride that is bound up in wanting to become like the gods. It's just the Promethean problem, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the importance to the novel and Miller's take on it, right? I mean, there's a recognition that this world is falling short of Eden, and there's the prideful drive to, I mean, uh, uh, to be the source of a change to bring about such a world, right? To take on the role of God and fix what uh, uh, has been created. And he describes again and again how the ends to which this secular science is guided are, you know, avoidance of pain and trying to create a world, you know, create a new sort of Eden in, in the rise of something like the, the nation state being its instrument. Right. Yeah. Okay. So just for the sake of time, we're going to have to move on, but let's just wrap mm -hmm. this. So like, let's wrap up part two. There's the whole poet Syrah, which I just think we don't have time for. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe we can talk about it on Twitter or something once this episode comes out. Mm -hmm. But, um, so just like part one, part two also ends in death. Uh, so who dies at the end? Uh, there's a poet who has been present throughout the happenings who, um, has, who's, who's in some ways stands apart from both Don Thaddeus, Thaddeus, um, secular science and the monks. He's sort of a general humanist who doesn't want to get involved in anything. He's uh, an equal opportunity critic of all sides and just wants to bear witness. Um, and an artist. Part He's of poet. Well, yes. Yeah. Um, he has a, a removable eye, which he can take out, which I think um, um, has symbolizes his ability to, to disengage his conscience um, in seeing the horrors around him and want to be a kind of a disinterested witness. Eventually, even though he wants to be a disinterested witness, he sees certain um, refugees being slaughtered by warring tribes, and eventually he can't stand outside of it any longer and tries to intervene and is fatally wounded and is eventually eaten by the buzzards and vultures in that circle. Right, yeah. So we've got another death. Now let's move on to Fiat Voluntas Tuas, which of course is a line from the Pater Noster. Um, so yeah, so what happens here? Like what's the final vignette, right? We have Brother Joshua. We have our final abbot, Abbot Zerki. Zerki, yes. And we have, and now we have Lazarus. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's finally going by his proper name, um, not, not just Lazarus by description, but by time. And then, of course, we have this incredibly weird character of the tomato woman. 
and her yes. second head. Yes. Yeah. So let's. We'll, we'll have to talk about her in detail. <laughs> it gets really, really <laughs> weird, but like in a good way, I think. Yeah. But super weird. Yeah. Well, I. I mean, in the broadest terms, the the plot of this third section. It's 600 years after Fiat looks. Scientific knowledge has been completely restored and has actually advanced beyond the 20th century, right? They've got off-world colonies and uh, spaceships and so on. But the ultimate result is the same, right? They're the, basically all of the states have, have coalesced into two superpowers. There's the Asian Coalition and the Atlantic Confederacy. Both have the exact same instruments of war that were present before. They have nuclear weapons. And at the beginning of this third section, one of these nuclear bombs goes off. And eventually it's clear that this was an attack by one of the coalitions against one of the superpowers against the other. Um, and eventually this very limited nuclear exchange uh, gets out of control and there's a complete apocalyptic nuclear war once again. During this, there's a recognition that this is what's happening, and there's a small group of bishops and monks, including um, uh, Brother Joshua, who's one of the main characters. And before the main nuclear exchange, they escape on a spaceship, they have the memorabilia in tow, and their destination is one of the outer world colonies of Alpha Centauri. So even though the world once again descends back into another dark age, just as it did before, at least in this case, the memorabilia is still being preserved, but now going on to a different world. Now, of course, a lot more happens in this text. And as you mentioned, there's this character of Rachel, which we should get into at a certain point yeah. in some detail because it's so thematically important. But um, is there something about just this general plot that you wanted to, to talk about and bring up? Well, I mean, yeah, so I think, I mean, it's short, Right. So this final section is, is, is short compared to the other section. Short but dense. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot going on. It reads really quickly. I would say that the parallel figure to Thon Tadio mm -hmm. is this doctor. Dr. Kors. Dr. Yeah. Kors. Yeah. So he reminds me a lot of Thon Tadio in a lot of ways. But basically, like, so the government... I forget who the government even is at this point. It's no longer the kingdom of Texarkana, obviously. No. But um, but at any rate, whoever the government power is, they had, like, decided in advance or they had, like, passed a law in advance of, like, how they would run euthanasia centers just in case there was another total nuclear war. Um, and so – and it was actually, like – I mean, one of the striking things about this vignette is how well-ordered things are after these bombs mm -hmm. start going off. I mean, it's almost like everybody understands that this was probably going to happen. <laughs> and so all of these legal protocols kick in. And so it's a little bit like on the beach. I don't know if people have read that post-apocalyptic Australian <laughs> novel. But at any rate, like the government has put itself in charge of assisted suicide, mm -hmm. but it's very highly regulated. So it's not like on the beach where they just mail everybody cyanide pills. You have to see a doctor and the doctor has to um, 
like certify you as a hopeless case. And then they give you like a red tag. And if you have this red tag, then it's up to you. But it, it's like your choice to go to one of these euthanasia centers and like just be put down, you know, like a dog. And then you get sent to like a like a cremating center. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the doctors, Dr. Kors, who's in charge of uh, the euthanasia. Yeah. So this, so this doctor comes to the monastery and he says, hey, like I'm going to use this monastery or I'd like to use this monastery as a medical center is like people can come here and I can treat them. And the abbot's like, that's great, but you can't break divine law. Mm-hmm. So you cannot do the euthanizing thing here. You can do like, you can help people who are sick. You can give them medicine. You can treat their pain, but you cannot murder them mm-hmm. because of course the church sees suicide, you know, as kind of self-murder, sees euthanasia as murder. One of the ways that this conflict between Ciencia and Sapiencia plays out in this final vignette is, yeah, thinking about what constitutes medicine, what constitutes health, and whether or not a doctor can prescribe death, basically, and have that be... Uh, illicit thing to do. And so there are all of these really interesting, powerful exchanges between the doctor and the abbot, and then also the abbot and this young woman who has been declared a hopeless case and whose baby has been declared a hopeless case. And he's very desperate that she not go to be euthanized. So it's clear that, they, that the, the infant is in incredible amounts of pain. Well, yeah. I mean, so the choice is very stark. Mm-hmm. You can either go to the euthanasia center or you can die a horrible, painful death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, the choice. And the church, in her wisdom, says, no, horrible, painful death. Right? And this is something that I don't, I don't want to get into it or, like, give it away because I think it's very well done. But this is something that in the way that the action of this final vignette resolves, I think it treats this issue with with justice, with, with kind of the justice that it deserves. And it sort of like reveals what a hard, a hard teaching this is. Yeah. You can see the difference in outlooks between the doctor and the abbot. There's an exchange where the, you know, the doctor's defending his activity, his euthanizing. And the abbot says, well, then God help you. And he responds, antibiotics help me more. Right? Um, and his goals are very... Yeah. Um, he also says, pain is the only evil I recognize. That's right. And, and the abbot takes this to be one of the principle, as he calls them, heretical claims that's responsible for the technological development taking the turn towards the destructive, right? That society alone determines whether an act is right or wrong, and that in this determination, pain is considered the only evil. And so the secular world directs human life to ends um, which are expedient, namely instrumentally valuable in the avoidance of pain, right? Whereas the abbot is trying to emphasize the manner in which life entails suffering and that it's 
somehow a perversion he thinks to try and avoid this by conceiving suffering as mere pain and trying to create a pain-free world, right? We try and recreate a world of ease, but it doesn't work, right? There's always going to be suffering, and it's in a way misdiagnosed, and man becomes bitter and destructive. Yeah. You know, there's an attempt to create a secular Eden, and it fails, because you can't actually avoid the suffering intrinsic to human life. And, you know, in an attempt to maximize security and eliminate pain, you end up making things worse, right? The underlying suffering intensifies because it's not appropriately integrated into an outlook which has, you know, God's redemption as an end to make it make sense, right? For suffering That's to right. even have meaning. That's right, because there's this essential theological meaning of suffering for the monks. And that is that, you know, our suffering is a punishment for our sin. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is something that, you know, there's nowhere in this third part that anybody articulates that. But it is ultimately one of the main points of these, this entire book. Because another way to restate the main point about when knowledge gets perverted for man is when he loses sight of sin. Um, and this is something that Walker Percy picks up from Miller. I mean, one thing that was just like totally astonishing to me in reading this was as someone who has read all of and really loves Walker Percy, it's like, oh, (laughs) well, now I see the source of so much of this. I mean, mean, he stated repeatedly, this is one of his favorite novels. Oh, it's so clear. It's so clear. I mean, I will never read Lost in the Cosmos the same again. It's just coming directly out of this. But I love this passage. This is page 326. This is Dom Zerke, the Mm -hmm. Abbot Zerke. To minimize suffering and to maximize security were natural and proper ends of society and Caesar. But then they became the only ends somehow and the only basis of law, a perversion. Inevitably then, in seeking only them, we found only their opposites, maximum suffering and minimum security. I think I mean, that's it's a pretty damning. It's a pretty yeah. damning analysis, but it hits really close to home these days. It hits really close to home these days post-pandemic for me. Yeah, and the suffering isn't something that can be handled because they don't have the framework in which they can view suffering as something mutually borne by God and humanity together, right, through Christ's suffering, Um, that it's something external that you just need to eliminate, reducing it to something like mere pain, and it's ultimately creating more suffering. Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think the whole euthanasia part of this and all of the really beautiful meditations, really beautiful, but I mean painful, Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like he has this Dostoevsky moment at the end. I think that's like one of the best parts of this novel. It's it's just like really rich reflections on suffering. Put in a context where that suffering is incredibly salient and difficult to read. Mm-hmm. So all of that's really great. But yeah, let's talk about Rachel. 
I mean, because yes, then it just gets the, very, very wild. This is the culmination of it all. And interesting, you mentioned Walker Percy, and he had a short review of the novel. And at the end, he says, um, you know, when you finish Canticle, the reader can ask themselves, you know, there's one question, um, um, and we'll tell whether you understood the book or missed it. And the question is, who is Rachel? What is she? And of course, Walker Percy doesn't answer this, which is somewhat frustrating. Um, gives you a little anxiety in trying to analyze this section, since he thinks there's a right answer, but doesn't tell you what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, just as a setup, um, Rachel is the seemingly vestigial head of a woman, Mrs. Grails, who... Um, as you said, she calls herself the tomato woman. She sells tomatoes. She is of generally diminished mental capacity. Um, she goes to the Abbey because she wants this second head that's grown out of her to be baptized. And the church is kind of not going in for this. Right? <laughs> I think um, they, they don't view it as a proper subject for baptism, but she wants it to be baptized. Ultimately, what happens, and we can go through this uh, as few times in as much detail as we need, once the nuclear bombs begin to fall, you know, there's great chaos and the abbot is kind of somewhat trapped as the, the um, monastery begins to fall and collapse. And he sees this woman, but when she turns around, the head that is animated and smiling isn't Mrs. Graves, it's the Grails, it's Rachel's. That this vestigial head has, in some sense, been born and come to life. And initially, Rachel just kind of repeats the word here or there. Um, what, what the abbot does is he sees there's limited time remaining for everyone. He tries to baptize her, and initially she rejects it. She pulls back. And what he recognizes, the abbot, he comes to this recognition that she's not in need of it, right? That she doesn't need this grace from him. And eventually she provides uh, communion to him, right? Um, saying her first single word, she says the word live. Well, that's just the, the main plots, uh, you know, the main pieces of the plot, but we should go into what she is and who she is and what this could possibly mean. Well, so, yeah, so Brother Joshua has this dream in which the vestigial head, like, starts speaking. Then this is before this happens, and says right. that she is the Immaculate Conception. So we have this idea of not necessarily of a new Virgin Mary. Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, so the thing is, you can't really understand who Rachel is until you understand who Joshua is. Right. So Brother Joshua is the one person from this monastery that's going to get on the spaceship and go to some I don't know, space colony and start over oh. <laughs> for yeah. Alpha Centauri or whatever. It is going to start over for humans. And he's baptized. There's a scene where he's like sort of baptized. And 
And this article that I referenced called uh, Medievalism and a Canticle for Leibowitz, um, he talks about how Joshua is, for, for the patristics at least, Joshua, the, the figure in the Bible who leads the Jews into the promised land after Moses dies, like he was read because, you know, the patristics all read the Old Testament as like, yeah, but like symbolically as kind of, they looked in the Old Testament for clues to the New Testament and the story of Christ mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And so they read Joshua as a kind of precursor to, to Christ, as a, as a, as a Christ-like figure. And so this guy, gosh, who wrote this? Russell M. Griffin. So he argues that Joshua is sort of like a new, a new Jesus, a new Christ figure. Mm-hmm. And that you know, Rachel is sort of like a, like a new Eve in the sense that the Virgin Mary was the new Eve, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't work out perfectly, obviously, because Rachel doesn't give birth to Joshua and isn't like, you know, so, I mean, it's all sort of highly symbolic, but I mean, it's obvious that the basis, sorry, the basic thrust of it all is that there is some basis for hope right? That God is at work in amidst all of this destruction is working miracles. And that, yeah, I mean, who knows, right? What the, what the ultimate significance of it is other than that we have a kind of new creation in this destruction. I mean, that's, I guess, like the most basic thing to say about it, but it's not a human create. It's not a human thing. It's the work. It's divine action. It's divine action at work. It's providence. In a moment, I'd like to return to that interpretation you mentioned of Joshua as a Christ-like figure, because I'm not sure I agree with that part of it, with that interpretation. But, but you know, biblical significance of certain names, and this is certainly the case with Rachel, right? So Rachel was one of the the two wives of the patriarch Jacob and mother of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And she shows up prominently twice in the Bible, the first in the, the book of Jeremiah and the second in the gospel of Matthew. So the first involves, uh, you know, um, events in city of Ramah, which was captured by the Assyrians and their children were captured and carried off into captivity and slavery. This says, you know, the voice was heard in Ramah, the lamentation of bitter weeping from Rachel. She's weeping for her children and, refuses to be comforted by her children. And the Gospel of Matthew quotes these very lines from Jeremiah after discussing the massacre of the innocents, right? Um, King Herod hears that a Messiah has been born and he orders every child born within a certain time killed. And uh, they bring up these very lines from Rachel again, right? Lamenting for the downfall that comes to the children of Israel, which is resonant in the current uh, situation, right? In which so many people have been annihilated once again through nuclear war. But in both of these texts, after there's a discussion of Rachel's lamentation and weeping, they are books of hope, right? The first one of hope in God, and the second one, especially the hope that is present in Christ, who wasn't killed. And there's a way in which Rachel is providing hope, especially to this abbot. She's fulfilling the hope for which the purpose in some way of his joint suffering with Christ occurs, right? I mean, her first word to him is live. And that has resonance because the abbot prior in having a conversation with 
Dr. Kors said that in some sense, the, the purpose that we have is simply to die, right? Not to be killed through euthanasia, but to die. And in this case, in receiving grace from Rachel, there's a recognition that in suffering in this death, there is a realization from for the ultimate hope that resides within it, that there is life after. I do think that as far as the book is concerned, Rachel is in an extended sense immaculately conceived, right? That's what was present in the dream, and that's at least the judgment of the abbot. Well, um, but I mean, I just don't know. She wasn't conceived. Nobody had sex to like she she because right. she wasn't even a congenital growth. Like she like this vestigial head. It's very clear about this in the book, actually, that this vestigial head just like started growing out of, you know, Mrs. Gale's uh, after she was born. So like there's no conception between two human parents for Rachel. So that's why I don't I mean, just theologically, I mean, she's Uh, I mean, look, insofar as Eve was conceived by taking a rib out of Adam and she didn't have sin either. I mean, it's not. It can't be the Immaculate Conception in the same sense. It just doesn't. No, I mean, I'd focus on the Immaculate more than the Conception part. She is without original Yeah, sin. she's without sin. It's not passed down. But so is um, Eve, like initially. Could, that's right. That would be an Immaculate creation rather than an Immaculate Conception, though there is an extended sense. She's, an immaculate, say, which, she's an immaculate growth. She, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a way in which you could say, you know, her father was the bomb and her mother was the fallout. And they are, you know, they're the efficient cause of bringing I think her you as being. a good Aristotelian know that that's really not going to work out. But yeah. yeah. Um, but she's in some sense a product of human sin. She came to be because of the nuclear wars that humans engaged in, right? She's a product of this. But um, yes, she's not born of man and woman, the 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 um, lineage of original sin is not passed on to her, but she is able to uh, give hope, especially to this one individual. I don't think there's anything in the book to indicate that she is, you know, the mother of any Christ-like figure or a new beginning of a new lineage of you know of, of beings free from original sin. But I don't think. She needs to be, right? I mean, she has the same preternatural gifts that both Eve and Mary possess, but she's, though she has the, the, many of the same features as Mary, she doesn't have to be a mother to a, a you know, a new Christ. Yeah, well, she's At not. Like, I mean, but she's not. I mean, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. it's, it's easier to, I mean, she's like the Virgin Mary in that she's a new Eve in some, like, very important sense. But... Yes. Insofar as Joshua is kind of like a Christ-like figure, which I thought that the case made for this was pretty convincing because you have this idea well, that... Why don't you give me the case? Because I didn't read this part of the, the article you were describing. Oh, well, I should have done the reading, babe. This was like the best part. I read the book. <laughs> um, but at any rate, um, yeah, so, you know, Joshua is given um, three days to make this decision, whether or not he's going to go... Uh, on the spaceship, right? And um, he t- he makes all these parallels between the three temptations that Christ experiences out in the desert, and what happens to 
Joshua in that garden when he is like trying to discern what he's going to do. This whole like Garden of Gethsemane sort of parallel there. Yeah, so he sort of goes through all of it. And then, of course, there is the ultimate parallel between Joshua and Christ in the patristic tradition of, of reading the Bible. But then also it's like, like he even like encounters the snake, you know, which is a symbol of, of um, the devil, etc. So he goes through this whole case. So now you have the situation where you have Rachel as the new Eve, although there's no indication mm-hmm. she gets on this spaceship. Uh, the spaceship has already left. Yeah. I, I think it left before the bombs fell. That's, that was part of the purpose to, to, to get out of harm's way before it was too late. Oh, I thought it left as they were all still falling. But anyway. Well, the, 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 the events with Rachel dispensing graces after they've fallen, right? Like, um, it's in... Yes. But, but no, I, I don't think there's any indication that she was on this ship or... I mean, she's going to remain on the Earth. And it doesn't say what happens to her afterwards. Well, I mean, I actually... I'm sorry, but I think the timeline's not clear. Because the way this story progresses, it's not always linear at all. And after the, and it, and it switches back and forth between like what's going on with Joshua over here, what's going on with the Abbot over there. These are sort of like disconnected in some sense, things that are happening. So I think the timeline's not exactly clear, but after this scene between the Abbot and Rachel, the last chapter just begins they sang as they lifted the children into the ship. Like mm-hmm. there's no, it's actually just not clear. I mean, maybe your timeline just makes more sense <laughs> plot wise, but I'm just yeah, saying. Maybe I was projecting it on. Yeah, but I'm just saying it's actually not clear. But um, but I, th- I just think the ultimate point is that it's clearly meant to suggest two things. One, that the church is going to go on, right? Mm-hmm. And that God is continuing to to be involved in his creation. I mean, I guess it's just one way of putting it, that, that God is still involved in history and not just history in the secular sense, but in, you know, the history of salvation. Yeah. And, and the hope that is intrinsic and present in the preservative activity of this monastery that continues is, well-grounded. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, I mean, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I have, a, I, have a, I have a question for you, which might help me better understand your take on Joshua. Well, it's right? not um, my take. It's this guy. Oh, Griffin. sure. But do you think that when these human beings are on Alpha Centauri, that the entire cycle of Dark Age Renaissance and ultimate annihilation won't recur again? Oh, I mean. Is I there mean, any indication that. Um, no, that, I mean. That this is, no. I mean, I, I mean, I don't No, There's no, there's no indica. I mean, look, so despite the vast expanse of time over which this, the story as it were, takes place, like a couple of things are absolutely constant. One man has fallen, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, man has fallen and so is in need of God's activity, right, is in need of God's grace. Man 
without God's grace has, has no hope and is ultimately going to annihilate himself, right? That the church as, you know, the, one of the main conduits of divine grace is always going to be a part of human, the human story or whatever, not just the church, but also, uh, the Jews. I mean, the Jews never go away and are symbolized in this story by this figure of Lazarus. And, um, that all seems extremely stable, right? But I mean, there's like no indication that I don't know, like, Christ is going to return on Alpha Centauri? Like, I don't know. And actually, there's not even an indication, so far as I can tell, that life isn't going to continue on Earth. Um, Like, there's no definitive judgment that, like, it's just all over for Earth at this point. No, my my read is that it's going to, the same cycle is going to continue again on Earth and Alpha Centauri and anywhere human beings end up. Uh, being, you know, populating. Yeah, and so maybe that makes sense given that, like, Rachel is this kind of icon of hope on Earth and then Joshua is this kind of icon of hope, like, on Alpha Centauri or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's funny. Like, this novel is so weird in part (laughs) because it is so Catholic. It is, like... (laughs) A super Catholic novel, but it's also just very sci-fi. And those two things don't usually come together, I guess. Yeah, no, they seem they seem prima facie opposed, um, um, just in, in orientation. Um, but but one way in which this book differs from other science fiction novels written around the same time, you know, it's often spoken in the same breath as as Braden World or 1984. Um, it's it's not in the same way as those books didactic. It's not as if he's presenting a solution, right? Like, oh, if only everyone pursues, you know, sapientia and had the right understanding of suffering and hope and so on, that we would be able to avoid this cycle of secular destruction. It seems at least clear to me that he thinks this recurrence is just going to keep happening and happening, right? That that within this cycle that's inevitable, um, the church plays an important role in giving at least some among us the proper orientation to this divine end and an appreciation of the hope that is paired with the suffering that um, can't be avoided. Well, that just seems like another way of stating something that every Catholic is at least supposed to believe, which is that sin is real and, and men will sin. Right. And so mm-hmm. if that's true, then, yeah, no, no right theology is going to fix that because that's not that's right. a reality that theology can fix. I think there's this like whole Lucifer theme throughout this novel, which we haven't talked about too much. We talked about it a little bit. But if mm-hmm. you think about so you can get really far philosophically, just like just on the level of philosophy, thinking about sin. But I think that philosophy just has no capacity to think about why Satan sinned, or that is to say the fall of the devil, because actually it's like a deeply mysterious thing. Because if you look at, for example, St. Thomas's account of sin, there are three causes of sin, ignorance, inordinate passion, right, and a disordered will. So ignorance lack of virtue and malice, 
right? Those are the three mm-hmm. sources of sin. But like Satan doesn't have passions, so that's not his problem. He's not ignorant, right? Nope. And he was created good. So why does he choose, I mean, so why does he turn from God? Like, it's actually deeply mysterious. He wasn't born (laughs) that way. He wasn't, you know, like there's, there's really no, I mean, he makes this choice, right? Which Aquinas attributes to malice. It's just bad will and pride. But like, it's a little bit difficult. I mean, because on his own theory of vice, pride would have to be something that you're habituated into. And that's not the way that it works for Satan. It's just like with angels, they have this choice that they make at the moment of their creation. So it wasn't like, yeah, so it can't it wasn't, be habituated. yeah, it wasn't like, well, like his mom didn't love him or he just wasn't, he wasn't raised well, or I don't know, like nope. it can't, can't be any of that. And so it just kind of leaves you with this idea that the dark edge of freedom is that you you can just turn away from what you know is good. And I think that Miller just, see, I mean, that's the ultimate issue for him, really, is sin. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's a novel it's, about sin. It absolutely is. And I think it's one of the ways in which it differs from those other sci-fi novels about human downfall that I mentioned that are very secular and are didactic in a way. Like they, they're in some sense, at least from Walter Miller's view, I suspect would contain the same vices that he's arguing against. Like the idea that we can engage in a project of utopia building and create a new Eden if we only do things slightly differently. Right? Whereas in his view, there's something intrinsic to human nature after the fall that recognizes that this isn't that we've gone about things poorly and if only we devise you know new ways of creating the state and engaging in scientific practice we could avoid all of this there's a recognition that god created the world in such a way that human beings can pursue these ultimately misguided ends yeah Um, yeah so i'm so sorry but i just realized we've been talking way too long it's it's gotten completely out of control sometimes people ask me (laughs) Oh, like you're married to a philosopher. You guys must just talk philosophy all the time. It's definitely not true. Yeah. Most of the time we just argue. But um, but when we do talk philosophy, we tend to get carried <laughs> away. And that has definitely happened. So you're just going to have... So final thoughts. Final pitch. I don't know. Last thought. I'm giving you the last thought. I think... I mean, I imagine many of your listeners won't have read this novel. I think it's completely worth it. I think it's, as you said, worth reading twice and reflecting on, especially if you like other books, kind of like Brave New World. It's in a similar spirit, but um, so peculiar and strange and different than them. Um, Yeah, I recommend it highly. Yeah, so I guess the final thought for me is just, I mean, I've been emphasizing that this is a super Catholic book because that's true. It's just a fact. But I think that if you are not Catholic or not Christian, and in fact are just a a good old-fashioned atheist, then I still think you should read this book. And I happen to know many atheists who who really love this book, although they haven't managed to tell me why. But I think, you know, (laughs) it just, it goes back to, I mean, you don't have to put this in a Christian register. You can throw it into this kind of Promethean, more pagan way of thinking about it, right? Where, because 
this was a problem that the pagans recognized. The corruption of knowledge or the need for knowledge to be well-ordered, it's right there in Plato and Aristotle. This idea that it belongs to the wise person to actually know how to to order to, or to be well ordered and i and i guess like my final recommendation besides obviously reading this book there are two secular philosophers that i admire a great deal the first is bernard williams who has written about promethean fear and then the second is cora diamond who has a beautiful essay called the problem, or I think it's on the problem of impiety, or maybe just the problem That's of impiety. Article. It's amazing. I teach it all the time. And you could easily teach, and perhaps someday in some bright future, I will teach both Bernard Williams and Cora Diamond alongside a canticle for Lieberwitz. And I think it would be pretty rad. All right. <laughs> Our kids are going to be home from tennis and we got to go, but thanks for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs>